This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to invite you here. As you probably know, this is a program in which we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask that poet to read one of her or his own poems that's appeared in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Rosanna Warren, whose honours include the Ingram Merrill Foundation Award and the Nation Discovery Award. Welcome, Rosanna Warren. Thank you, Paul. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today is by Ellen Bryan Voigt. Uh, It's a poem called Bear, B-E-A-R. Now, tell me, if you wouldn't mind, uh, what drew you to the bear I loved this poem when I first came across it in the magazine, and I loved it even more when I saw it in Ellen's book, Headwaters. I was fascinated by the way she sets the animal in relation to the human, and you think the drama is animal-human, but then it turns out the drama is human-human, and it's man-woman. Yes, it takes a wonderful swerve, as we'll uh, hear shortly. And, you know, the poem changes tack. Something happens. It comes from left field, uh, as we say in this country. We're taken aback. Something unexpected happens. But that, of course, or some version of it, is um, central to the way so many great poems function. Yes, there's a surprise. And the surprise, I think, is also rhythmical. I love the pulse of the poem. It's written in free verse, but in free verse in a very sensuous relation to traditional English metrics. So the lines that that skim out longest, which are in the middle and are the core of the drama of the danger the man is in in relation to the bear, are the longest lines. And then the poem contracts at the end to some very conventional iambic pentameters as if it's reasserting a kind of human, civilized world. I, I find it rhythmically brilliant. You know, it occurs to me just looking, as the rest of us will shortly hear, looking at the first line of the poem, pressed full length against the screen. It is an iambic uh, pattern, but as you say, it suddenly unzips it. And in fact, the word unzipping is the next word. So it, it provides, as so many poems do, a little running commentary on itself. And it's not punctuated, so it has flow. But it also has strong syntactic guidelines. We know these are sentences. These are declarative sentences or questions. And that's a play, too. That's a tension, too, between its fluidity and its sense of it wants to have temporary stasis now and again as it gathers itself. 
So a rhetorical device uh, at, in the second line, for example, with the playing on the sound of the, the seed and the suet, again, harks back to an, uh, a slightly earlier tradition, is unzipping that also. Yes, beautifully. So there's a lot of assonance in the poem. There's a lot of alliteration, a lot of sound play. And there's also a lot of repetition. It's almost as if the repetition is a little engine inside the poem. So we have the word help, help. We have the word praying, praise. We have I did, I did. I stood, he stood. Ground, ground. It, it's motivating itself to go forward into its drama. You mentioned uh, assonance and alliteration. And these are two terms that actually most people who wouldn't ordinarily read a great deal of poetry, they're terms with which they're actually quite familiar. And people point to assonance, they point to alliteration, though sometimes as if both might have some intrinsic merit, which of course they don't. But this is assonance, alliteration at the service of something. Yes, at the service, I would say, of a uh, intensification of experience. So it intensifies the linguistic experience, and because it's a good poem, that intensified linguistic experience acts upon our nerves and understanding and heart, I hope, as an intensification of psychological and emotional experience. You know, I think the listener uh, will now want to hear this poem. <laughs> I hope <laughs> so. i rather a lot about it in anticipation of that. So let's hear it, and then uh, then we'll talk a bit more about it. And I'll say just one thing. The title is The Noun Bear, and it is also the first word of the first sentence. Bear, pressed full length against the screen, unzipping it for a better grip to help him help himself to the seed and the suet, slung high under the eave by the man who has charged down from the bedroom onto the porch in his white loincloth like David against Goliath, but only one good lung shouting, swearing, and behind him the woman caught at the lip of the lit kitchen. Where was my sister with her gun, or would she be praying since she prays routinely for a parking spot and there it is, or would she be speechless for once that this man so moderate, so genial, so unlike me, had put himself one body length away from a full-grown bear? Or would she be saying, You, my dear, are the person who married him? Which, of course, I did. I did. And I stood behind him as he stood his ground on the ground that is our porch. You can see the marks gouged by the famous claws on the wall inside the new screen, now laced by a wire trellis on which nothing climbs, a vertical electric fence. One of us thinks the bear can hear it hum from the edge of the woods, watching us like a child sent to his room as we grill the salmon, we spiked with juniper berries, the other one thinks. The plural pronoun is a dangerous fiction, the source of so much unexpected loneliness. That was Bear, a magnificent poem by Ellen Bryant Voigt, which was published in the November 26, 2012 issue of the magazine. Now, I... The title, as you say, is Bear, B-E-A-R. 
And I think it's perhaps not too much to suggest that it refers on one hand to the shaggy animal, but also to the idea of bearing up or what may be born in the world. Is that too much, do you think, to bring to this? No, I don't think so. And I think it's part of a process of discovery that the poem provokes, as it also provokes the wordplay on I did. The marriage ceremony is consecrated by I do. And this speaker, who is obviously a wife, says, I did, I did. And she's confessing a great failure there, a failure to support her husband in a moment of great danger. It's marvelously intricate and it's so simple. Well, I think that combination is really remarkable, isn't it? It has the rhythms of everyday speech, the language of our comings and goings through the world, yet it is remarkably complex. I agree, and I love it for that, for its lack of pretension. And also, what I look for in any poem is some degree of danger. I want linguistic danger, I want syntactic danger, and I want moral or emotional danger. And this poem discovers its own danger, I think, not in the full-length bear pressed against the husband on the screen door, but in the relationship between man and wife, the relationship of potential betrayal, of saying, I did, I did, I did potentially betray you, and how can anything be the same after that? And yet, they put their life back together, they're grilling the salmon, the bear has no longer dangerous by the end of the poem. He's been sent out like a child, a punished child. The danger is now between the humans. You know, the full length itself, is a, that's a term that I think we generally use of a mirror, perhaps. And it's, it's as if it, you know, it sets up the, the notion that there is some mirroring in the poem. There's going to be some mirroring, but not in anything like a heavy-handed way. One doesn't have the sense that the poem has designs on us. It sort of unfolds very naturally. Yes, beautifully. And that echoing is linguistic too because we in the very first line the bear is pressed full length against the screen and later the husband and his moment of greatest peril has put himself one body length away from a full-grown bear so the mirroring is is quite explicit though I I think you're right to say it's not heavy-handed I don't think it's forced the situation supports it you know I think at that point we should move to your own poem uh Man in Stream, which we were delighted to publish in the June 5th, 2006 issue of The New Yorker. And there's a mirroring there that I'd like to look at for a moment or two. In the second stanza, we have the phrase, but he outstirs you. In the third, it begins with death outpaces us. This is the kind of device, again, that knits the poem together it's like a thread running between the two stanzas and then right through the poem. Well, I hope so. And this is a poem, too, about the meeting of human and animal, in this case a beaver and a man, and it's finally all a poem about the meeting of human and human. Now let me ask you, as you were thinking of a poem of your own to read, were you conscious of there being a link between your own poem and the poem which came into the world through Ellen Bryant Voigt? Not at the beginning. I chose Ellen Bryant Voigt's poem, Bear, because I love it and because it had so excited me when I first found it. I chose Man in Stream because there's a line in it that means a great deal to me. 
uh, which has nothing to do with human and animal. But once I put the poems together, I realized that they were similar in very strange ways. Are you going to tell us what the line is, or should we try? <laughs> should I'll we tell you. I'll guess? tell you, so you can look forward to it. It's. You'll see what you think. I think this line breaks out of the established descriptive frame of the poem and the rhetoric of the poem. It's in the third stanza. It's I wanted a day with cracks to let the God light in. I wanted the poem to lift off there, in a sense, to break its own, to crack its its own frame. Um, so that that choice of this poem had nothing to do with animals and humans for this occasion of reading. But then I discovered, well, my goodness, these poems are both set in New England landscapes, and they both involve a couple, and they involve an interaction with an animal. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> so... Rosanna Warren, may we hear you reading your poem, Man in Stream? Man in Stream. You stand in the brook, mud smearing your forearms, a bloodied mosquito on your brow, your yellow T-shirt dampened to your chest as the current flees between your legs, amber, verdigris, unraveling today's story, last night's travail. You stare at the father beaver, eye to eye, but he outstares you, you who trespass in his world, who have, however unwilling, yanked out his fort, stick by tooth-gnarled, mud-clabbered stick, though you whistle vespers to the wood thrush and trace flame flicker in the grain of yellow birch. Death outpaces us. Upended roots of fallen trees still cling to moss-furred granite. Lichen smolders on wood rot. Fungus trails in wisps. I wanted a day with cracks to let the god light in. The forest is always a nocturne, but it gleams. The birch tree tosses its change from palm to palm. And we who unmake are ourselves unmade, if we know, if only we know, how to give ourselves in this untendered light. That image of the birch tree tossing its change from palm to palm, what a remarkable image. Can you remember, as you wrote this poem, how that phrase came to you or how that image came to you? I can remember very distinctly because I wrote this poem in a tiny shack in the woods in Vermont, uh, a place where I've written for many, many years. 
looking through the screen, it's a screen porch, at a birch tree. And I have for many, many years considered the action of those leaves. And I've come upon many images for it and many words for it. And I remember the moment of thinking, oh, change, palm to palm with the wind making the leaves shiver. And of course, it's picked up again in this extraordinary word in the last line, this untendered light, because legal tender refers to some kind of monetary exchange. Yes, the tenderness that is perhaps lacking between the two humans in the poem who are unmaking something, as the human father earlier in the poem was unmaking the beaver dam from the beaver family, things are being unmade. Things are rotting. Things are coming apart, cracking open in this poem. So there is a, a lack of tenderness. So it's a word that's going in two directions very effectively. It's difficult, I suppose, for a poet to use the word make, unmake, unmade in a poem without being conscious of uh, the essential uh, definition of uh, a poet as a maker. Mm. Though I would hope this poem wasn't too self-consciously about, look at me, whoopee, I'm writing a poem. I have to say I'm rather allergic to such poems. So I, I hope that the landscape in itself is real and concrete enough, that the people are concrete enough, that the rot and the fungus and the lichen are there enough to allow the drama of making to have a, a more primitive sense. But that doesn't exclude the making of beaver dams or the making of poems. Talk to me a little bit about the context of the poem, the setting of the poem. I suppose it's difficult to write a poem in which a birch appears, in which um, the forest indeed appears, never mind the smouldering uh, on wood rot, without appealing or conjuring up in some way Robert Frost. Was his spirit lurking around here? Well, not in the foreground, I would say. But he can't help but be in my background, in my deep imagination, in my sense of the possibilities of what a poem can be. And particularly in, in regard to something we spoke of with Ellen Bryant Voigt's poem, Bear, the play of speech rhythms against musical and metrical rhythms. He's such a genius at doing that. He remains, I think, a master who can teach us still we need perpetually to relearn what he was t teaching us about the strain between music and speech within a poem. You know, I think uh, my own sense is that uh, while Frost wrote so memorably about birches, it doesn't mean that the birch is off limits to the rest of us. Uh, he doesn't have absolute turbary rights over over the birch grove. Um, in a way, he's, he's at once made it a little difficult, but also somewhat easier, actually, to write about the birch. Possibly, though it's always a challenge to find one's own way. To go back to that word danger I used, I think every writer has to find her own danger. And that's how you step outside the schoolroom. So do you have, a, for those who are listening, uh, who are themselves writers, as I'm sure many are, how do you put yourself in danger? Mm, great question. 
and it doesn't always work. Um, I remember Derek Walcott once describing how poems begin for him, and he said something I've never forgotten, which was that you have to be careful. It could be a fake poem. And he said the whole the cold key is to know when it's a fake poem. Hard to judge that, isn't it? Yeah, hard to judge, hard to judge. And sometimes one doesn't know. You perpetuate this thing or perpetrate it. But uh, how do I put myself in danger? Well, I, I go into a sort of trance state and with my notebooks all around me and a, a dreaming activity. And I write by hand. It probably comes from my early training as a painter and drawer. I was drawing ever since I was a very young child. So I think of poetry as a form of drawing. But it's also a musical drawing because I'm hearing patterns in my head. So all of these arts are coming together. They do the for me. They certainly do for me. And that's maybe one reason I love poetry. It's a totally hybrid art. It's imagistic. It's musical. Mm-hmm. It is drama as much as lyric. I'm greedy. I want it all to be working. Well, what a refreshing thought uh, to leave us with today. Thank you very much indeed, Rosanna Warren, for that. Bear by Ellen Bryan Voigt, uh, as well as Rosanna Warren's poem, Man in Stream, may be found on newyorker.com. Ellen Bryant Voigt's latest book of poems is Headwaters, and Rosanna Warren's most recent is Ghost in a Red Hat. You may subscribe to this podcast the New Yorker Out Loud podcast, the Fiction podcast, and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. And you may hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of the New Yorker. Until next time, thank you for being with us. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.